Hi, I'm Emily Rose, the assigning editor at Rebind.io. And on today's episode, we're joined with Will Smith. Hello. Hi. Hello. And uh, some of you may be familiar with Will's work uh, back in the day with Tested, but also the VR podcast that you did sort of thing with like, you did like an episode on like Firewatch and some other stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah, so you're thinking about the Foo Show, uh, which was an mm-hmm. early. Uh, it's it's a piece of VR software we launched with the headsets in 2016, I guess. Wow, it's a long time ago now. Um, but we we basically took uh, game developers and and other artists and scientists and stuff like that into the digital worlds that they created, so that we could interview them in a way that they could like point at and and touch and show us the kind of inner workings of these of these constructs. In the same way that we did it tested with physical props and, and real objects. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, that ended in 2018. So we're we're doing other stuff with the same technology now, mostly making cartoons. And and it, it, it well, as often happened with VR in the early days, things got complicated pretty quickly. <laughs> Especially back then. I mean, the pipelines for that sort of stuff has been streamlined to an extent now, but it can still be like a bear to wrestle with. Yeah, So so what we were doing... Look, I was not a game developer when we started out doing this, and it it became really clear that with Firewatch we had gotten a really great positive signal uh, in terms of like the difficulty of bringing content design for to run at thirty hertz on consoles uh, in two D, you know, in flat flat space. Not, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a three D game, but you're not doing stereo perspectives. Um, and and that game was really really well suited to port over to work in in uh, VR with 3D. When we started doing other games, it became clear that not every game was going to be that easy. And a lot of games, for example, the shader programs that give surfaces the the kind of look and feel, uh, so that they look and feel like actual materials, aren't necessarily all 3D stereo correct. So that means the math runs differently for your left eye than your right eye and the objects that result don't line up and it makes people feel kind of uncomfortable and, and it's a bad experience for everybody all around. So anyway, <laughs> we don't need to get into technical details, but the point is it ended up being a lot harder to bring 2D games over to VR than we initially thought it was going to be. It's a really cool idea though. I, I remember that at the time, like jumping out to me because I, I first time I got a hold of a headset, I was just like, oh my gosh, what can I even do with this? And I'm like, looking through the seam store and I, I saw that and I was like, Oh, Hey, it's Will from tested. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was a really good effort. How did that idea come about in the first place? Um, well, so, you know, when you start a new company, I, basically I saw VR. I, I mean, I, I, we'd been covering VR at tested for years at that point, but when I saw the vibe at GDC in 2015, you know, when they, when valve and HTC first unveiled that night and, and I realized it, it took me a while to kind of grok what was important about having hands in VR, you know, having access to, to your hands. And you, there's actually a tested video where Norm and I spend 40 minutes or something talking about what it was like to try the Vive and to see, you know, the things that we all know now, Tilt Brush and Job Simulator and um, the bow and arrow thing that Valve ended up releasing and all uh, the blue with the whale, all the different things that they demoed at that first session. Um, and And neither of us got all the way there and it took me a month or so maybe even longer to 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 realize that like having hands gives you access to an verbs that aren't accessible with traditional game controls whether it's a gamepad or a mouse and keyboard you know you can you can bind x to to pick out to throw something on a on a gamepad but you know when you have hands you can overhand it you can underhand it you can sidearm it you can kind of juggle it up in the air you can throw it straight up or down and you have much more control not just in, in the number of verbs that are accessible to the player but also in terms of um the verbs that are accessible like the the granularity of those verbs so after i sussed that out over a period of 3 months i was like i've i've watched Technology revolutions happened for the entire 18 years of my career at that point, right? I'd watched 3D mm-hmm. accelerators and the rise of Windows and the rise of mobile computing, and the rise of phones and apps and all of the stuff that had happened over my over my my time uh, reporting on it. And I was like, I want to go build something for once. So I started talking to some people and I figured out things I was good at. And they're like, you should just do an interview show. I was like, oh, huh? What does an interview show in VR look like? And I was like, well, we could just load up alt space and you know do a talk show with stock avatars and all that that would be easy and relatively inexpensive um or we could do something that would be impossible in another media and i, I kind of feel like if you're building vr software you should 
build stuff that is impossible in other media. Um, and that, that that's kind of where the Foo Show came from. That's awesome. So you mentioned you're kind of using that tech that you built up for that for things now. Are, is that something you can talk about or is that something yeah. that's public? Yeah, oh, no, cool. no, we've, we've done... Um, we did a 20-episode arc uh, with Adult Swim um, of a show with Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force on their oh, digital whoa. on their digital network um, in 2017, 2018. Uh, it's called Pre-Game Prognostifications of the Pigskin Wizard. I think there's some on YouTube. I, I don't know if it's still on Adult Swim's app. Um, it's it's all about it's like an NFL call-in show, so it's pretty timely and not doesn't make a lot of sense these days. Um, <laughs> and then we've shot a ton of pilots and done a bunch of like prototypes and stuff like that for other things that haven't haven't that I can't talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, the upshot is, you know, the the thing that made the Foo Show magic, and we didn't realize it when we were doing the show, is that our character animation was really good using the sparsest of data that you get for animating a human body, which is, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, three points of data, a head and two hands. And um, since then, we've had some machine learning and, and done some other things. And we're we're able to get a very believable human avatar out of anywhere from three to six points of data these days. That's, that's uh, this, awesome. This, the six are, the other three are pelvis and feet, just if you're keeping score at home, so... Um, so what was it like kind of going, I mean, you, you have quite a bit of media experience, but certainly pivoting from talk shows and, and tech reporting and, and reviews and things like that into more of like a full blown, like show production, especially for a company like Adult Swim, even though it was like for their like digital video stuff. I mean, it's still probably somewhat involved. What was that like, like pivoting in that process? You know, it's funny when you, when you put it that way. The Adult Swim team in Atlanta at William Street, um, which is where uh, all their live stuff, uh, most of their live stuff comes from. I think they have a studio in Burbank now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it runs a lot like we did at Whiskey. You know, they they are there. It's a big team of people, but they still are punching way above their weight, and they they're really scrappy. So you know, they're when we were doing this, we were shooting it live. So we were making a live cartoon, which you know that's novel. Um, uh, usually, usually doing that's really hard on the animator's hands. I think is the Simpsons joke from from twenty <laughs> years ago. Um, but but no, they they kind of figured out how they they were in charge of the production. We just provided tech support, and they figured they figured it out. Like they made it work and got got the got the work done. And whether they were ready or not, they were live at seven o'clock every Wednesday night. Um, so it was it was fascinating to get to like dip into that culture and be like, oh. Wait, I know this. This is the same as when you know we were doing a big uh, a, a Friday afternoon live show, happy hour, and the TriCaster went down for a driver update 15 minutes before the server before the show was supposed to start, and you know Vinny and Drew and Joey and Anna and the production team was just running around like maniacs right up until the 20 seconds before it came back. The show was supposed to start, and the and the, and the TriCaster came back up, and it and it worked out. So um, such drama, such tension. I mean, it's 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 very it's very um, uh, like you know Studio sixty situation where there's people walking down the halls. I mean, we're not as attractive as those people were, but um, <laughs> the 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 overall feel of like the like the thing that empowers all of this is the the fact that the technology to do that video work has gotten really inexpensive and accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, what what cost us half a million dollars when we started Whiskey is now a, a a PC with OBS and a couple of three capture cards in it and maybe a control a stream deck and you can do a lot of the same stuff we were doing back then. It's really mind-blowing to think about how much that has changed behind the scenes. I mean, now we just take the fact that we have like streamers on our doorstep, hot and cold running virtual tap, no big deal. But back when Whiskey Media started, what really did set it apart was like, I can't really think of many, if any, like big live streaming sort of productions that were going on in that time. And then... You guys had popped up back then, and it was just like, wow, okay, this is like something different. It, it felt entirely separate from everything that was going on with with YouTube, which was still pretty young back then. Uh, and it was kind of it was kind of magical. It it was a little bit community access, right? Like, but mm-hmm. but with some extra production. And and you know, my my friend Gary, who came in often because he liked hanging out there, always said that it was. 
like whenever you'd go down in that basement, you'd meet somebody interesting, right? And and having a bunch of interesting, smart people working together to make very very silly videos um, was was a really it was a really magical experience. I mean, it was unlike anything I've had before in my career. So it was it was a wonderful time. I think too, what was incredible about it was the amount of content output, not just like the Friday casual shows, not just the individual like streams or, or episodes put out every week but especially like i know when it came to giant bomb in particular like uh, their game of the year stuff was just like all out like you know like everybody gets these top tens and coming in and then coming in for the big all together one and doing all the podcasts for everybody respectively on top of that all i mean it's just like immense everything that was going on I mean, that's just the amount I, I've never worked harder in my that's not true, but I've I worked as hard there as I've ever worked in my life. And I think everybody was you know, nobody left anything on the table, um, especially like game of the year. I mean, I know a lot of that stuff slowed down as people have families and, and things like that now, which is which is just to be clear, is the right thing to do. We were we were burning as hard and fast as we could because we needed to get something off the ground or else we weren't going to be able to keep doing it. And, um, you know, you have to get through that bootstrap phase but it was an unbelievable amount of work on the video production team. I mean, when we launched Tested, Vinny was in all night editing the the launch, the video that we launched with. Um, when we dismantled the iPad a couple of weeks after the site launched, he he was there for 26 hours or something editing that video. Because we, we didn't... It's funny, back then, especially when we started Tested in 2010, we didn't have live streaming capability, really. They had... Like when they live streamed and they wanted to switch cameras, I feel like they unplugged and replugged an H. Like they physically unplugged a camera from the capture card and plugged in the <laughs> Xbox um, when they were doing those early TNTs. And that was great, but you could only do it a couple of times or else the audio and video would get way out of sync with each other. So, like, so we didn't, when I did, when I took apart the first iPad on the day that it came out, we didn't do a live mix of that. That was, that was a thing that we shot three cameras and then Vinny spent. 30 hours editing that night and was up to the day after the iPad came out. Oh gosh. Talk about burning the candle at both ends. It really was. It was a lot of sweat and blood and, and, and love went into all, all those videos. So how, how did that whole situation come about? Because I don't think I've ever heard an account of like the origin story of the whole project. Oh, um, well, so whiskey started well before I started there, you know, Jeff famously left GameSpot under mm-hmm. some unfortunate circumstances um, and it's kind of Shelby Bonnie and Mike Tatum and Dave Snyder and Andy McCurdy um, and Ethan Lance uh, reached out and, and you know, Dave and Ethan had built comic vine, which was the first kind of wiki slash editorial site I'd ever seen that, that combined, you know, combined user generated and editorial traditional editorial content. Um, so Shelby, when, when Jeff left uh, GameSpot, uh, they reached out to to him, and some, somehow that became they started a Whiskey Media. I don't I don't know the details of all that. That was before my time. But then mm-hmm. in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, I I was watching Giant Bomb as it kind of started. I was like, this is a really neat thing. They're doing video. They're doing some editorial. They're they're like they have this amazing user generated database that the like is still like like when you type a video game name into Twitch it comes those names come from the giant bomb database right like it's it's incredibly ubiquitous data at this point and it's it's very much so a library of alexandria situation now yeah kind of yeah like where else can you go to find out every video game that has a cheeseburger in it right um so so they were doing something completely novel and i could i i was sitting in magazine world at maximum vc still and i was like this is the kind of website I want to make. I don't want to go do a, you know, a straight journalism. I don't want to copy Gizmodo or whatever everybody else was doing at the time. I want to go out and I want to learn how to do video and I want to do editorial and, and merge user-generated content together. And uh, I reached out to some friends there and was like, hey, I'd love to... Why, you guys should do a tech site. Um, and we talked for a while in and, and March of... March March 8th, actually, two days ago, I mean, when we were recording this, Two days and ten years, we launched uh, the first version of the site, right around GDC time. That's so exciting! So, like, walk us down memory lane. Throw some anecdotes at us. I mean, there there has to be some like fun stories to tell from back running all that. Yeah, I mean, it was the 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 weird stuff, the stuff that was fun. Like, here's the thing: 
even on the days when you were exhausted and you didn't want to be there, it was fun. It was, you'd go in and, you know, somebody would be out sick and Jeff would be like, hey, can you pop into this quick look with us? Or um, you'd, you know, there'd be a 40 minute conversation about what movies fit in this weird bucket that Rory and Alex were coming up with over at, at the movie site. Or, you know, Tony would explain to me how, why Moon Knight is not a direct ripoff of Batman for an hour. And and you'd learn something new and weird pretty much every day. But I mean, those those early days, like if you go back and watch the early tested videos, which I have recently since it's the 10 year anniversary, there we were really bad at Norm and I were Norm was always much better than I was at video, but but Norm but we were bad at video. We we were you know, the, the giant bomb guys had come off of ten years at GameSpot and had, had spent a lot of time doing that stuff, but we were at magazines. I think the the first video we recorded for Tested was maybe the third or fourth time I had done any video work at all. And it became clear that like we needed, it took us three months of being bad at video before we got to the point that we weren't like that. I I could watch those videos now. Um, I'm trying to think early anecdotes. There was one, the first big live live show they had pitched, Hey, let's do an eight hour live show. And it's like, this is a terrible idea. There's no way we can do this. We don't, we have, <laughs> there's 18 people work in this office and that's, you want us to do nine hours, eight or nine hours of content. And, so we sat down in a conference room for, I, I mean, it was a day or two. We were, we were just talking through different things we could do. Um, and we knew, you know, in Ryan Davis, we had an incredible chairman. Somebody sit in the chair and keep the thing moving, even when everything else was off the rails. Um, we had two or three, four sets that we could do. We knew we could do a rock band segment. Uh, we knew that the harmonics guys would come in. You know, J- J- John Drake and Eric Pope would come and bring mm-hmm. folks to help support us. We knew that we could call on uh, friends of the site. You know, the folks from like Twisted Pixel and places like that. They'd come down and and help us out. Um, we eventually got like a division of labor that seemed equitable based on how many people were working on each site. You know, because you know, Giant Bomb had more people than everybody else because it was a much much bigger site. Um, so you know, we weren't going to make you know, Tony and Sarah do five hours of comics content by themselves. And we got there and then we did it and it was like, it was a mess. It was, it was a huge mess, but it worked like the whole thing. I don't think we dropped it. We, we, there was no dead air. We kept things moving. At one point I looked over and I saw John Drake asleep on a couch. Cause he'd been there since six o'clock in the morning, like four o'clock <laughs> in the afternoon. He was just, just unconscious, but like, it worked and it was this beautiful mess. And um, it's, that was the day we launched subscriptions as well. And we came out of that with, I think our goal for subscriptions was a fifth of what we ended up getting. So we like, we, we had five times the response that we, that we had hoped for in our kind of wildest dreams on day one. So um, it was, it was a good time. Like it, it was gratifying to know that the audience, like to, to have the audience see what we were doing and appreciate it enough to give us money, which like, in the age of Patreon, doesn't sound like much, right? But but in two thousand, in twenty ten, when we launched that, I I don't know if Patreon was around yet. I know Reddit and ours Technica had done a like, hey, you can pay us some money and we we won't show you ads. But that mm-hmm. was the only non like New York Times or Washington Post subscription thing online I'd ever seen at that point, and and we were we were really thrilled that it actually worked. We weren't we you know we were nervous going in. I, I think the little bit of like public access analogy combined with like, uh, again, it, it had this very like TV vibe. It had this very like l- local cable channel subscription thing going for it in, in like the best way possible. And it, it lended it this sort of like lovely intimacy and chumminess that you couldn't get anywhere else on the internet at the time. Uh, I think back then when I was watching, I'd cycle between you guys and then sometimes the Mega 64 video podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was kind of my fallback. And that's really all there there was. I And I mean, I remember even like right about when YouTube got started, one of the first pieces of video content that had that memorable kind of parasocial dynamic was probably like when Zay Frank was doing the show, um, which was kind of like, a, are, are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's. I think that's fair. I think that that seems right to me. Um, so it was like it, this interesting like progression up the ladder, and then you guys showed up, and it was just like pizzazz. Well, the, I mean, I think the thing that we did 
And, you know, it's difficult because, you know, at GameSpot, they had been doing this for a long time. I mean, we started podcasting really early at Maximum PC um, because we had some enthusiasts on staff. Uh, podcast, you know, ba- back in the days when you had to, you know, burn your podcast to CD to listen to them in the car. You know, so, so like, I was familiar with that dynamic. Like, the, the meet, when you would meet a, fa- when you meet a fan, I realized after meeting dozens of tested fans that, like, it was almost like we were hanging out in their basement with them when they were listening or in their car yelling mm-hmm. when they were yelling at the radio in the car listening to the podcast which is which is something that we had experienced at maximum pc before but the video cranked it up to a whole new level and and yeah it's it's very much like there's a one way conversation which is a weird way to put it but it, it's like people feel like you're part of their their, their daily routine and and it's a very personal relationship for a mass media thing which which I wasn't expecting coming into this I think the only big examples I can think of that happening before that were probably like, you know, uh, it's kind of a famous trope at this point, a lot of media that's covered it, but like talk show hosts, you know, like regional (laughs) talk show hosts, especially because they're, they're a local celebrity. They seem within reach, you know, the fact that you're listening to them every day on the radio, but they're in your same city or your same state or your same region, you might bump into them. Uh, And, and I think that that dynamic is manifested like tenfold now with this stuff because even though the distances might be greater a lot of the times we're going to the same trade shows we're going to the same like conventions as our fan bases and and readerships and listeners and it just kind of like ramps everything up it's very true that you know there's also there's also a kind of tone you take um if you if you want if this is the kind of content you want to make there's the traditional media voice which is you know i'm i'm either an expert or someone who parses the experts to get the information you want out and then distributes it to you, um, which is not at all what we were trying to do. You know, we, we never wanted to be the publication of record for any of the industries that we were, were covering mm-hmm. or, or cared about. You know, we, we just wanted to kind of open the doors to those conversations that, that we were, you, you know, when you live in San Francisco and you work with a bunch of people that are into the same things you are, it's it's difficult to it's easy to forget that when you didn't live in San Francisco and you weren't surrounded by a bunch of wonderful nerds all the time, you didn't have an out as much of an outlet for that stuff, um, mm-hmm. for the, for that kind of for those kind of conversations. You know, the my first day at Maximum PC, I remember I came home, came back to the hotel I was staying at, and I I called my my girlfriend, and I said, hey, she was like, how was your first day? And I was like, this is incredible. I'm just surrounded by these people who care and are knowledgeable and interested in the same things I'm interested in. I literally never had that experience before. So, um, I mean, and that, that's the kind of thing that's, that's the, that's the goal of, of whiskey. I, I had a real milestone, uh, a few months ago when a group of people that we had introduced, like when we started tested and we would go to different towns for, for, for videos or whatever, we would, you know, have a, find a bar someplace and say, Hey, we're going to be at this bar at 10 o'clock on uh, seven o'clock to 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. If everybody wants to come by and hang out, we're, we're around. And, uh, Joey and I were in Houston for a SCAA for a coffee convention one year. We had a meetup at this bar and the people who were at the bar kept coming to the bar after we weren't there. They were like, Hey, it's really cool to meet you guys. This is great. And they had like a regular meetup for that's gone for years and years and years now. And, and that just, it makes me so happy hearing about stuff like that. Um, that's like, so awesome the, the, yeah the, like what better way to build community than to have them want to continue hanging out even if you're not there that makes that that's the best so what were you what were you going to SCA for was that uh, for tested yeah that was for test so we did um, like we uh, tested we did food science and tech right um, and coffee counts as that's food that's right was- that's right I remember now because like I've I've been my profession before I got into doing games media stuff was coffee. I did a lot oh, nice. of coffee at that level where it's like I've been to uh, Coffee Fest, I think it is. Not not yeah, SCA, yeah. but Coffee Fest. And uh, so but now I remember watching a couple of videos that did did cover some coffee stuff and I was like so excited. I was like, ooh, this is great. I get to have tested in coffee together. Uh yeah, the coffee so you know, part of it was part of it was that when we you know, unlike games where there's new releases of games pretty much every Tuesday and now now literally every moment of every day there's 15 games being released um you know with video with with tested we had like fewer interesting products spread throughout the year to to actually cover in depth and we had to figure out some other stuff to do during the during the kind of downtime 
mm-hmm. and one of those things was that we I I had an AeroPress on my desk one day when we were like, hey, we need to make a video, and we don't have any anything here to review. What should we do? So I was like, hey, I have this AeroPress. Let me make a video about how to make coffee, how I make coffee with it. And we made the video, and you know, it ended up being one of the biggest videos on YouTube for AeroPress coffee making <laughs> for years and years and years. But like that. Especially at that time in the like the early 2010s, there was an explosion. Everybody who knew how to blow, gla- blow glass, it seems, was making some sort of weird pour over device, or like the the people were doing siphon filters, people were doing um, uh, like making all sorts of bananas coffee science stuff. It was really a fun time to, and, to like explore. And that even stuff. especially more so too because the chemistry was coming into play. It's like. If you got a glass blower together with someone who knew anything about like, you know, microcontrollers and things like that, then it's like, all right, we're going to make this behemoth with these crucibles and it's it's going to be called the steampunk and it's going to do all these goofy oh. things. Oh. God, that thing, that thing, that thing is remains amazing. I'm, I I saw that the first time they went to SCAA and I was like, the Alpha Domache steampunk is what we're talking about, um, which was a um, kind of a combination siphon and press brewer. Like it boiled the water up. It was this incredible show when it made coffee, and then it would plunge the whole thing out and and push the siphon, the filters out the bottom. So they they basically made a mass market siphon brewer, which was which was amazing. Like like I they still use them. There's a couple of tea shops in San Francisco that still use them to make tea because they're apparently really good for that. I've only seen one out in the wild once in the Pacific Northwest, and that's a shop in Portland, uh, Ristretto Roasters, like off 16th yeah. and Sandy. Yeah, they have one, and that's like kind of their claim to fame. And I, I was around the corner for a while there, and it was just so nice. I could come in and be like, oh, this is like whiz-bang space age stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm just as happy with a with a traditional pour-over. Um, oh, yeah. But, but it was like... It was a neat thing, and and the, like the reason it was neat was it gave them incredible precision over the brew. So if you're working at a roaster where they take the time to dial in the the temperature and the and the brew time and the grind and all that stuff to make, you, you, I had some astounding cups of coffee from those machines. And not only that, but I think something people really overlook when it comes to high end coffee stuff is that there is a certain element of theatrics to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a performance involved. So it's like when you have a machine like that, it is not only such an eye catcher. It's like the the you get to have like a little talk show, like YouTube video every time a customer walks in and goes like, "Ooh, what's that? Like, can I get something for that?" Like, it uh, it it really warps people's perception of what's possible with like a something as simple as like a beverage like that. Um, and and there are so many gizmos. I remember there was I went to a shop in the region. I'm in, and they had this thing called like a, I think it's called a seraphim, and it 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 looks like, frankly, it looks like an alien that stepped right out of XCOM. It's like got these big white domed shaped caps that come out rising out of the bar, and these weird like little arms and things like that. Then underneath the bar, there's this like big glowing thing that the best way I can describe it is it looks like a space age like PC tower. You know, it it's even got these like glowing blue lights and these like fancy grills and everything. But it's just a brew system on demand, kind of like the Uber boiler or the um yeah. steampunk. And it's just yeah. like wild to me, like the extents people go to with the technology. Well so the thing that became clear doing the coffee videos, because before that we had done a couple of interviews with people who were making like, you know, um, V60 competitors and stuff like that. And it became clear that it was interesting to talk to people who were making things and were passionate about the thing that they were making, whether it was a phone or a camera or a coffee brewer or um, a Wally robot, you know, that some guy in the Central Valley had made. There was, there were amazing. These people had amazing stories, and and if they were passionate about the products they were making, it was really easy to talk to them and get and and like helping them get those stories out was something I really loved doing. So um, this seraphim thing, I've seen these. There's one in one of the shops I go to in San Francisco, but it is very much like the Uber boiler. Um, mm-hmm. Like like it's funny. The Uber boiler is the first thing that I saw at the first SCAA I went. That I was like, oh this is going to change how all the shops near me work because it's going to mean that they don't have to, you know, they're not batch boiling water in kettles. They mm-hmm. can just have a nonstop supply of, boi- of, of water at precisely the temperature they want for their, for their brews. It was, it was fascinating. It, the, co- the coffee stuff was always really good and going to SCAA selfishly, like I've not had coffee 
when you go to the place that all the best baristas in the world are and all the best roasters in the world are and they're all there showing off their very best work for for the other for their peers the coffee there was the best coffee i've ever had in my life like across the worst cup of coffee i had at sca is better than anything you get in a normal third wave shop anyway uh, so yeah if sca comes to your town go go it's worth paying the ticket price to go in and get try some coffee it honestly is, if nothing else, to step into a wild world of seeing like what it is behind the scenes of something where things are like still high. And another one I recommend going to is the uh, National Restaurant Association show. It- it's like wild because you get restaurants and-, and food manufacturers coming from all over the world and you have like your national pavilion and like, oh, such such good eats. And it's it's such high quality. It's like it's it's not something you get to experience in any sort of traditional setting for any of these, be it the coffee or the food or anything like that. And that's that's something we kind of miss out when we do more like tech or game oriented things is because we're not necessarily getting like we are getting the best and brightest put in front of us, but in kind of a business to business sense and, and trying to sell us like, you know, the, the latest whiz bang cool trend or whatever. And that could be fun in, in like a demo way. Uh, that's definitely like exciting to see what's coming next or what have you. But, you know, I'm never going to have to worry about a slice of pineapple grilled on salt coming to me like, you know, never because the, the company <laughs> fell over or whatever. Well, yeah, it's it's um. there's other things that are different about those communities, too, like the food community and because we did a fair amount of food stuff, but the food and the, especially the coffee community, the coffee community is so inclusive. I remember I, I talked to, um, you know, usually when you go to a trade show and you interview someone, you're like, hey, have you seen anything cool here? What, what you know, what, what have you what's the neatest thing that you've seen that that you should check out? And usually, you know, if the person is media trained, if it's if you're talking to somebody from Intel or Microsoft or a giant Fortune 50 company. Then they'll say, well, actually, you know, over on the other corner of our booth is <laughs> is this incredible innovation and in imaging tech. The coffee show, <laughs> at the coffee show, I talked to, like, the one guy, one of the guys who made the Uber boiler was like, hey, you should go over here and talk to to, to um, uh, Steve, who's making this machine. It's kind of like the Uber boiler, but he decided to go a little bit different way with it. And they're direct competitors. And they're, they're pushing media to go talk to each other because they're like, you know, a rising tide lifts all, all ships. And, mm-hmm. and they realized that, you know, that they weren't in a zero-sum market there. Late-stage capitalism didn't apply to third-wave coffee in 20, 20, 2011 or whenever we went to the first SEA. And they were, they were ready to, to come in and, and, like, help spread the word and, and help all of their, help their customers find the solution that was right for them, even if it wasn't necessarily the thing that they were selling, which I thought was stupendous. You know, and what's fascinating about that is there was actually um, reciprocity of that in the actual shops themselves. Uh, there were definitely a couple of cities throughout the country that I visited and spent some time with, spent some time at all the different cafes because I was really obsessed about like sort of like mapping out the geography of coffee in the region. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed was that if someone was sick or someone needed to like go see a music show or whatever like that, they would actually not just call around within their own shop, but they would reach out to other shops and just go like, hey, you want to come do like a guest shift? Like they literally would call it a guest shift, which is wild. You really don't see that in any other business that I can think of where it's just like, it's like a for fun thing because you're getting to see a different part of town, a different part of the community. Everybody knows each other. It's this camaraderie. It, It almost really did feel like a guild. And I know there is a barista's guild, but this this was where the guild feeling of community and and just that overall familiarity and standardization and it was nice too because nobody ever had to really worry about job security as much if they needed to move across town the commute was too long for them anything like mm-hmm. that like more often than not they can just swap shops well and and there's i think part of that came out of the the shift away from exclusivity to inclusivity as well cuz i i remember you know, when I was in college in the '90s, and you would go to the fancy coffee shop in town, which was a, like, it was a cool coffee shop in in 1990 pre Friends. It was it was a you know it was an amazing place, but it was very much like if you didn't pronounce the thing right, then you'd get the little sneer from the from the mm-hmm. '90s barista, and and as baristas realize that like you know hey if you educate the 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 populace, then like the, the, once once being a barista became part about making coffee and part about education and not sneering it it, it the whole market opened up and and uh, you know we wouldn't we wouldn't have i mean a starbucks did a lot to make sure that you get a halfway decent cappuccino anywhere in the world i guess at this point 
but also having really lovely third wave shops open. Anyway, yeah, I could talk about coffee all day. I, I love this stuff. And, and and there's a reason I segue into it, because this is actually kind of like weirdly enough relevant to what we do. And this is the reason I'm willing to indulge it so long on this episode, uh, because like something that's fascinating to me about what you mentioned with the, the rising tide and, and the comparing each other to like your competitors, but not in a and not in, a, in like a good in a helpful, mutually beneficial mm-hmm. way is that. That is something you see happen in like the the little indie scene with games a lot of the time. You know, if I go to a trade show, especially in like the smaller booths and everything like that, everybody kind of knows each other. Everybody's worked on projects with each other a lot of the times. And it's like, oh, you like this game? Like you might like this over here. You know, my my friend or my old colleague or, or whoever I'm working with, like there's never ever that feeling of like, at least at that scale, you know, when you're when you're on that other side of double A and you're not in the triple A sphere of things, it's very much so like, oh, we're in this community together. We all have all these diverse games that complement each other. And nobody's really like feeling the need to choke up the space. It's not like you're dealing with like PUBG versus Fortnite or what have you. And mm-hmm. so that 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 harmony sort of bleeds over sometimes into other fields, not too often, but but small games are really unique in that way. It's, it's, um, it's something that I've been just th- thrilled to see in video games, board games, all of that. Uh, like the the spaces at GDC that are always fascinating to me are like the Indiecade area, or the I, I guess it's IGF there, not Indiecade, mm-hmm. but um, you know where they bring in everything from like student games to indie small indie teams, and it, like you said, it's a bunch of stuff that ends up on Itchio, and you know they're not they're they're kind of like the novella or short story version of video games, right? They're like these little quick bites. Often, I, I mean, I, they're not always little quick bites. Sometimes it's something like Super Meat Boy. Um, but you end up with a lot of uh, really novel perspectives. And when you walk around there, you walk around all control GDC, which is the festival that's dedicated to building weird hardware to play games. And that can range from like couches to antique phone switchboards to, to like yep. just pieces of paper sometimes like it's, but, but the folks there, at those, there was yeah. one in 2019, they actually had you like shoveling coal into like a, a furnace. It was amazing. Yeah. How, I mean, I think they could have paired they could have gamified the workplace there and gotten the coal shoveling people to work a lot faster <laughs> in the bottoms of the ships. But um but no, it was the people in those areas are always like, hey, make sure you check out Bob over around the corner and they're doing something that I've never seen before. It's really cool. So I, I love that. I I love that sense of inclusivity and and you know, trying trying to bring more unique voices into the space and that and that's how we do it is by fostering inclusivity and, and covering those games and, and showcasing the people who are doing neat stuff. One of the other lessons I learned in the coffee industry and how that brought over to games when I finally got involved in that was that in coffee, there's a real understanding of the logistical chain involved, right? And I think that comes mm-hmm. from what you were mentioning, the like education, like the, the barista as a teacher almost. And because, you know, commodities prices are always falling and rising. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, leaf rust, a bunch of other like things like that. But ergonomics was a huge issue out in the field because uh, when you go to pick coffee on these uh, coffee farms, it's it's wide, shallow baskets that are like harnessed around the hips. So what you started getting was people doing like sports medicine and, and other research initiatives coming in and going like, how can we improve this? Like, how can we like do like a... One project I read about years and years back was um, uh, it was this uh, researcher. She had come from, I think, orchards, apple orchards and things like that. And she came over and went like, well, we've we've kind of got this like almost like, you know, like this front carriers you have for like a baby almost. But it's this basket that's on the front of you where you can just drop the apples in the chute. Like, why don't we try doing something like that for coffee cherries? Because coffee has to be grown at certain elevations. It's very hard if impossible to get machines up there. And then even if you manage to do that, you're going to start shredding up the trees and it's just, it's not great. And considering how long it takes to grow coffee, it can be devastating to pick a crop wrong. Yeah. But what's interesting about that too, was that uh, on the other side of it, you know, moving aside from just the technology, you had all the innovation being done on the chemistry side of it uh, in terms of the endpoint delivery. Cause uh, what, a lot of people listening may not understand necessarily about coffee, or maybe you do, is that there is sort of 
everything has to go perfect in that chain because you can lose information, but you can never get it back. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like you have to preserve as much as that possible from growing it to processing it to export and shipping and then roasting. And finally, by the time it gets in the hands of your barista, hopefully they've been adequately trained and have an appreciation for the processes to get the best results from that, assuming everything up to that point has been good. So it's so complicated and intricate. It's it's like carving a, a statue out of marble one cup at a time, right? You, you each each cup is trying to chisel as much of the ultimate ultimate statue sculpture out of that out of that marble as you want. But but it's like you said, yeah. It's and that's the, this is one of the places that I think the SCAA is a real model, um, a real model for industry organizations because they advocate across. Uh, you know, unlike. Unlike say the ESA, which represents game publishers and and developers, kind of, um, mo- but mostly publishers. They the SEA represents um, uh, growers. It represents uh, processors. It represents shippers. It represents the people. It represents the people who own the warehouses that the that the coffee sits in when it comes mm-hmm. into Houston or say or Oakland, and and it represents the brewers and the roasters and the baristas and and all the way across the board. And and like they celebrate each part of that. So even when you're talking about somebody who's a a, a coffee farmer um, in in Nicaragua, who's who's you know who obviously is not making money to fly to Portland and come to some coffee convention, they they actually do a fair amount of scholarships for for growers and processors so that they can come and and be part of the whole thing. And roasters bring their growers in, and and like it, it's it's a it was. It was fascinating to like get to talk to people who grow coffee in Ethiopia or, or Colombia or Nicaragua and see them at, at a trade show where you know when you go to when you go to CES or E3 you you don't see the people working on the factory line in in China making video cards or phones uh you know they they're not they're not part of the conversation so it, it's a it's a I I'm a big fan of the SEA I think they do really good work. Oh yeah and and now that you mention in retrospective I really forgot how nice it was to have such a huge organization spread across such a massive industry and feel like that organization kind of had your back and was always pushing for innovation and and like education research and progress like i i know that thanks to the works of uh james hoffman and Nida battelle and stuff like that mm-hmm. they've done a lot more work on the actual like proper chemistry like analysis like the actual science that goes behind a good cup instead of just sort of like this guesswork we had been doing up in that point. And uh, it's just so fascinating seeing all that grow. And the point that you mentioned too, about having actual like growers and things like that, people from the field coming into the trade shows and how that's an experience we don't get elsewhere. It's interesting because that's even reflected in the um, barista championships, right? I remember Uh there was kind of a a big shakeup a while back because we had, um, I don't know. I want to say this is maybe like 2015, 2014. One of those things, USBC or, or World Barista Championship. And yes, mm-hmm. they do exist. Uh, was, you should uh, watch those videos on YouTube. Watch the videos on YouTube. They're astounding. Oh, it, They're- it is out of this world. It is one of the most fascinating competitive sports. And I will call it a competitive sport because people spend months, if not years, training up their shops to do this. And what was unique about this particular um, winner this year, and I, I can't remember their name to to anything uh it was um noteworthy in particular because he he was a u.s uh competitor but he was from hawaii so he had actually had control of that whole logistical chain from planting the trees growing them uh roasting them to brewing it etc so when he came out to perform he had this massive advantage in terms of like he didn't have to be flown around to kind of get a feel for the whole process or anything like that. He controlled every single step for it, which gave such, again, like that huge advantage, um, which was a very unusual circumstance. Usually, sometimes you'd see that happen um, in the producer countries, usually, was where you got candidates like that. And that kind of always gave them like a home advantage. So it was very unique for a, a United States competitor to come in and and be able to have this. And so what's interesting to me about that, though... Is that continuing with the SCA and and the different aspects of coffee is that they also had a pretty good awareness of their labor movements and how labor was impacted by bad decisions from management, 
um, how unfair practices could arise and not only be disruptive to the working environment and to the worker, but also the consumer. And there was they're generally pretty good about like uh, I remember when I was starting to pull out of the industry. There was a lot of finally talk about the ergonomics of the barista, especially because mm-hmm. when you're tamping down all day long, uh, if you don't do that with the correct posture, you can really mess up your wrists and your shoulder yeah. and your rotator cuff and everything. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because we don't have that analog in the games industry at all, and and um, y- you know, I think part of the part of the shift with third wave coffee was the recognition that that is it's a career, right? Like if you, if you love coffee, like there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to be a barista or work in roasting or whatever for the entirety of your career. It's not just something you come in and do while you're looking for your, for your real vocation or whatever. Um, which is, I think the feeling that a lot of people had prior to that and, and the work that the CAA does on stuff like, you know, if you're, if you're going to be doing that work for your entire life, then yes, you're, your posture when you're tamping makes a huge dip, is is hugely important for your for your long term health. So yeah, that's good. Love the SEA. Those guys are great folks. There's also absolutely parallels to be drawn in terms of uh, like industry, the industry ladder, so to speak, because that's been the interesting problem with games for a while is that it's a very hard business to break into. Uh, and mm-hmm. then on top of that, it's like kind of once you have, once you've dropped in as like a QA or, or whatever like that, it's like, how do you sort of climb the ladder? And and they had confronted similar issues there. So when I made the hop over to games and, and sat down and started taking a look at this stuff, I was able to like sort of package up some of the lessons I had gotten from that and bring it over. And um, that that's kind of the fun thing is like uh, in a lot of ways, like people, especially in the indie space, sometimes I think it discouraged, they get burned out and they they look at things around them and go like, oh, it's indie apocalypse, all this stuff. But I don't think people realize that outside of these bubbles of, of tech and of games, that there's a whole different world out there in terms of thinking and tackling these problems that do have those parallels and those overlaps and that there are different solutions and there are ways to have organizations that, again, are actually effective and have your back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like everyone could do with like the benefit of just like going to some of these other different trade shows and completely different industries and like picking up a little bit of that. I mean, I think there's some that are better than others, right? SCA is probably one of the one of the very tip top ones. Um, but a lot of the food industry works that way. Like if you look at... Mm-hmm. Um, when you start out as a as a as a chef as a beginning chef in a kitchen someplace, you're learning skills that will both you know make you better at your job, but also make you able to continue doing that job for as long as you want to. Um, and I I, do, I definitely feel like the games industry tends toward uh, you know, bring in bring in a lot of people on the low end, see who survives, and keep promoting, especially in the AAA space and and then in the in the big studios. Um, you know, see who survives and see who punches out, and and promote the people who survive and replace the people who punch out with the fresh crop from from the university, you know, game degree mills. So let me ask you. I mean, you've you've been at this uh, business for a really long time. What's been probably like some of the more interesting trends you've seen evolve in in games over time? Oh wow. Um, I mean, look, there's there's. The thing that has become clear to me doing this for a really long time is that there's a new thing to chase every 18 to 30 months, probably. Um, you know, in in the early 2000s, it was MMOs. And then WoW came up and absorbed all the space in the MMO world. And then it was... Um, I, 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 I can't even remember at this point. But, you know, we've had RTS booms, first-person shooter booms, RPG booms. We had... The rise and fall of VR, the rise of AR, which is happening right now, even as we speak, it's around us every moment. The alternate realities, um, you know, I I find the temptation to chase a trend, right? Like battle royales got really popular when PUBG and then Fortnite came out, and now we've reached an equilibrium where there's like three big ones in the space, and then nobody else ha- can find room to breathe with those. Although, I mean. Activision just launched a Call of Duty Battle Royale again today, so we'll see how that goes. Maybe, maybe there's more. Maybe there's more air in that in that audience than I thought. But um, I I find, especially if you're working in the indie side, making something that speaks to you. Like my my whole career has been based on making media that I would have enjoyed consuming if I wasn't making it. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I I made 
a magazine that I I started reading a magazine, then ended up going to work for the magazine, ended up running the magazine. I made a website that I thought I still think is fascinating. I love re- now that I don't work at Tested anymore. It's great because I get to read Tested. Um, <laughs> All of these, all of these places, the, all these things that I've done have been based on making content for me. Assuming that that there, with the seven billion people on the planet, there's someone else that's going to like the same number of things, and hopefully, there's enough that you can make a business out of that, and it's worked out so far. Um, but presumably, you're inter- everybody's interesting. Everybody has interesting taste, and there's people that like the same things as everyone else. So if you go out and make something that you like. You're probably going to be okay. I, I worry more about making something that I'm going to be excited about playing than than going out and and you know doing whatever the current trend is or whatever your games biz article says is the is the hottest trend in 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 indie games right now. Well, I think that's a thing, right? We have a tendency to trend chase. You know, we think like, oh, this this game mode's really hot. We got to do all this stuff, and and it's like. There's a natural inclination to do that. And sometimes you can innovate from riffing off things that have been already kind of established and doing their thing. But then you kind of miss out on those beautiful opportunities just to go in a completely different direction from everybody else. And I I think that that's generally a good idea is to strike a balance between do something that you love, that you care about, and because there's a certain earnestness that comes through in that. And just temper that a little bit with business expectations of like, okay, well, what's actually working here? And then find that happy middle ground that that seems to be kind of one of the beautiful parts of the industry is being able to do that. And especially now that there are so many games, as you said, like they're just streaming out every like 15 minutes. That's that's kind of an advantage too. Um, yeah, a- absolutely. Don't, <laughs> you don't, once you get to a point that you can start testing and getting friends and family and outside people to play your game, yes, listen to what they say. Don't just, don't just keep making the thing that <laughs> you want to play at that point, right? Um but yeah, I, I look at I look at like um, what uh, Megan Fox is doing with Skatebird. I'm so excited mm-hmm. about that game. I've been watching watching her work on it for years now, starting with like a couple of gifs two years ago. Right, I was like, I think I'm gonna make a skateboarding game, and then she posted this video of a, of, of a bird flapping on a skateboard. I was like, oh right, I'm this is the thing that I'm 100 percent here for. And I, <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a one of the one of the beautiful things about the modern indie scene is that if you love a genre that just disappeared any number of years ago, you know, in this case, you know, skateboarding games from the from the late 90s early 2000s or space sims in the case of Rogue Rogue, uh, Rogue Galaxy Outlaw and and those mm. the, those types of games or some other genre that I don't care about and can't think of an example in, but but you know the the point is, like there there's audiences out for those older games, and if you do that right, and build the game, if you can modernize an old genre then that you love, then you can open up not just the your your game to like the existing market of people who played Tony Hawk twenty years ago and really liked it. But also expand that to a whole new audience of of people who may not have ever experienced one of those games in the past, and and uh, will be thrilled to to like dig into this thing that that they didn't realize existed, and opens their world to a you know opens their eyes to a bigger world. Right, because these games don't stay big cultural monoliths in perpetuity; they they cycle out just like old film, and it becomes a new. And sometimes it's time for a reboot. Sometimes it's time for a riffing or an homage. Uh, big shout out to Megan, by the way, who I think put us in touch in the first place. And that was oh. super oh, really? awesome. Skateburb. Oh, yeah, Skateburb is looking great. That's so fun. Um, I'm so excited about that. They're they're super nice. I, I really love everything I've seen of that game so far. And I'm I'm really happy for them. They've really bolstered up quite the fan base. And I think it's going to be a pretty exciting launch. It's it's and and, and they're another example of um like the marketing that they've done with that game has been very um i want to say personal but that's not exactly it. it 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 hasn't felt like marketing but it's been very good marketing which i guess is the the best possible marketing is marketing that doesn't feel like marketing right um they've they've just done shared the things that give them joy when they're making the game and and that that gives me joy every time i see it pop up in my feed so well, I think that's been the big shift with a lot of smaller indies, especially, is that uh, there's been more of a push into the low overhead, more precise 
uh, sort of gifability stuff, which has a darker side to it, but, you know, also like, I think for the most part has been like certainly much better than just throwing ads at everything and seeing what sticks. Uh, because it's like, while it can have a tendency to push some people, I think, to approach it cynically and be like, okay, how do we make the most gifable moments thing? Um, it It's also yielded a lot of just like, being able into a short snippet, get a feel for a game like pretty quickly off the bat and not have to worry about like dumping half your budget in the marketing. Instead, you can actually like retool that and just put that back into the game, which is really super nice. And one of the big upsides, I think, about how that landscape is shifting. It's like much in the way that we shifted away from, you know, those traditional formal media voices that we use to present things to be a presenter. And we shifted into this sort of like cozy, chummy, like sort of setting. I feel like that's starting to happen for like, you know, software and games too, where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, I'm just making this thing. Uh, I've, I've heard of developers just outright streaming the entire development of their whole game process on like Twitch, you know, they'll just sit there and make the whole thing in front of an audience and build up this big discord and early access user base. <clears throat> it, it, it turns out if you give people who are interested in your game a way to contact you and stay up to date on what's going on with your game, even while it's in development, it's not a bad thing for, for the future of your game. Um, yeah, uh, William Kyer, who made Manifold Garden and just released that last year, did a ton of streaming while he was just writing code. Like, just loads up the IDE. You can watch him, you know, with the preview in one window and and talks through what he's working on. And it was absolutely fascinating to watch that stuff. So, and and, and it's a it's a if you're a developer, it's a wonderful thing to do for people who are behind you, you know, who are coming up after you because they can watch and they can see and they can you know, see what you're working on, how, how it works, see your process getting through things. And, and it, it turns out one of the things we learned at tested is a lot of, for a lot of people who are making something, whether it's a physical prop recreation or a game or, or, you know, whatever else, a lot of it, it turns out is about just getting the process started and then doing it every single day and, and, and continuing and, you know, being, being consistent and, you know, putting your head down and doing the work. So process stuff helps with that. And showing people your process helps other people follow you, follow along. And that's something I wanted to talk about with Tested, which is that one thing I always really enjoyed about it was that it didn't, because of the approach of having the reverence for the person behind the thing and reverence Mm -hmm. for the process, I think that it sort of like subverted that feeling of just... A lot of tech publications, at least at that time, had this feeling of like, oh, we've got the new hot thing. This is so cool. And I think focusing on the people makes it a little more timeless and a little more like broadly relatable. And that was something like, again, very specifically like magical about Tested in particular. Well, so one of the core precepts of Tested was, especially in the early 2010s when You'd buy a new smartphone. Most of them were really bad, and you'd be stuck with it for two years because you bought it on a contract and you couldn't afford to get another one uh, to replace the bad one that you'd bought. You know, our feeling was that we had to look at those things as a holistic whole, and and you look at it from the from the viewer's perspective. So, you know, if if it doesn't matter if the new Samsung phone had the best camera we'd ever seen on a smartphone, if the, everything about else about that phone was bad, it's still a bad phone. And and we couched our reviews and coverage of products in those terms, and it filtered into our into our coverage of of you know non review stuff. You know when we were when we were talking to people who were making something amazing, the thing that became clear and the thing that we got good at over the first couple of years we were doing that site was how to kind of not disarm them because that's not fair, but how to make them comfortable, how to make the people we were talking to comfortable enough that they were not going to be panicky about being on camera, and so that, that so that their thing would show well. Um, cause you know, if I, if I'm driving out to, you know, to central Oregon to interview somebody, I want, I don't want to waste that time and make a video where the person's nervous. It's not a, it's not an, it's not a, um, it's not a animosity, you know, it's, it's not a challenging interview. We're not interviewing the president about how they're, mm-hmm. how, how he's messing up on the day to day We're we're, you know, trying to help this person share the thing that they love. And so we, we built a whole process around that. And this is something, if you're in the media, like 
while our production side was setting up uh, cameras and microphones, getting all that stuff ready after we'd get someplace and start unpacking, Norm and I would go and talk to the principals who were going to interview and kind of do a pre-interview so that they could think about how to frame their answers. You know, we we didn't tell them this, but but by asking them, you know, kind of getting them started with the questions we were going to start with, then you you could you could a shape the conversation going forward and give them a practice run so that they would have an opportunity to iterate once or twice before they actually were on camera. Um, and, th- and then they're not nervous for the first couple of questions. And then by the time you get through the first, first, first couple of questions, they'd be really comfortable and in, into the, into the topic and forget that they're being recorded. And, and that is how you get a good interview on this type of topic, um, without spending two or three days getting to know the person beforehand, which turns out isn't financially practical for anyone really. <laughs> What was it like running the podcast? So I, it's funny at Maximum PC, we always had a, a podcast producer that we paid um, to to sit in and do the edits and kind of like lead the show. And and Jeremy Williams, who's now a tested regular again, um, and it was it was interesting getting being on the on the driver's side of that when we started tested. Uh, Ryan Davis, who was at Giant Bomb gave some spectacular advice between my first and second episodes of the tested podcast, which was just, you know, don't be afraid to let the room breathe. Uh, and I didn't know what he meant. I, I said, Hey, what do you mean by that? He was like, just listen to some other podcasts. You'll, you'll get there. And what he meant was, you know, you don't have to, you, if you're doing a conversational podcast, which is what I do, you know, obviously if you're making 99% invisible or serial or something like that, edit the hell out of them you know, take out all the ums and the ahs and the pauses and all the weird, weird bits of language that we don't think about because we hear them all the time and our brains just filter them out. Um, but if you're doing a conversational podcast, which is what the Giant Bombcast and Beastcast and the Tested Podcast and Still Entitled are, then then those should be... It should feel like a conversation that you just happen to be a fly on the wall in if you're the listener. And you shouldn't edit out all the ums and the ahs and the and the you know the weird sounds that people make with their mouths and um, you know you should be a, a decent human being and not chew food while you're recording the podcast so that people don't have <laughs> chewing sounds coming from the center of their brain when they're wearing headphones. But you, and, you don't... unless you're going for a weird ASMR angle, then by all means, look, I'm not. We're not here to kink shame. That's whatever <laughs> what people are into is the people are into. That's fine. Um, but yeah, you know, be respectful of the audience and and but also. Give them, give them the feeling of what it's like to hang out in the room with you and your co-hosts, and when you're when you're having these weird conversations. Uh, that that was the big thing early on, and that that's really stuck with me for a long time. It's, it's I, I think it's actually applicable to way more than podcasts. I think if you think about um, the work we did on Tested with One Day Builds, it's funny we talked about it on Still Entitled this week as we were doing 10th anniversary stuff. Um, but Adam said there was a moment in one of those builds where I was like, you know it would be nice to just show some of this work without having voiceover on top of it and not having to talk about it. And they started, Joey started cutting in bits of just, you know, some, some shop time, like, you know, marking and cutting and, and just standing there looking at it and thinking, and it suddenly feels much less like a TV show and much more like you're getting a glimpse into what it's like to, to be in the shop when Adam's working or when, you know, when we're in a podcast recording a podcast or, or whatever it is, it's much more personal. Well, speaking of personal, I wanted to personally thank you for coming on to the show. This has been so fantastic. Uh, it's It's been a real treat. Uh, I kind of briefly touched on it earlier, but Whiskey Media has greatly impacted what we've been doing over at Rebind because of the fact that as we pivoted into audio and video content, that's sort of very much so been our, our guiding light, our, our bar standard, um, everything that all of you accomplished over there because it was a very memorable time um, in media, and I think personally for me in the audience as well, it was just kind of like a astounding revelation of what could be done with it, um, and and doing so in a more human approach. So uh, thank you for all the hard years of work you put in. Oh well, thank you for listening, and thank you for watching, and and I I love. It's always awesome to hear that people took that and they're carrying it forward. You know. It, it, the individual sites are still there, but that was such a special time in that all these brilliant people were jammed up in a tiny space and given a weird set of constraints and resources to go build something, go, go make the thing that we wanted to see. And we did it and it worked out reasonably well for everyone involved, which is I think the best case. So. 
And I think one thing that makes it so inspiring for what it was is the fact that Whiskey Media didn't have, uh, like, it wasn't a big, huge corporate entity or anything like that. It was very much so, like, just like, we have some capital, we're going to throw it at some stuff and throw things at the wall and see what happens. That that was that was the ethos. Yeah, here here's here's how much money we have. Let's see what we can do with it while it goes. And uh and uh we were lucky that we got to keep doing it for a long time. So Well, uh now's a great time to plug what you do, um, give people some links, social media, things like that, uh where they can find you. Oh yes, the plugs. Um if you want to find <laughs> me on Twitter, uh I'm just Will Smith. Uh, it was an unfortunate choice I made about ten years, fifteen years ago now. Um, I just started a new podcast a couple of months ago with Brad Shoemaker of Giant Bomb called Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. Uh, you can find that at techpod.content.town. It's not your normal like weekly news roundup bogus. You know, we, we have enough of those. Uh, it is a 45-ish minute long deep dive on a single topic. And like we, we get into the weeds. So if you want to learn about how batteries work or um the singularity or why you might want a, a network attached storage server in your house or any number of different topics uh you can check that out there and we do a Q&A episode every fourth episode so if you have questions about PC builds or what phone to get or computers or TVs or whatever we can get into that stuff see if we can help you out and the, the address there is techpod.content.town um and then I'm on still entitled every week with testing. If you want to know more about uh how to make cartoons with VR and machine learning, you can go to foovr.com. That's F O O V R dot com. Uh doing a doing a QA episode. I, I might have to steal that idea. Maybe I'll experiment with that. It could Look, be fun. We invented that. No one's ever done it before, as, as best we can tell. <laughs> uh I emailed it to myself, which I believe means it's now a registered trademark of Brad and Will made a tech pod. So if you'd like to talk about licensing rates, we can we can have a conversation after the show. Please be merciful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. And for our listeners at home, as always, you can support great independent content like we're doing here today at patreon.com slash rebind. You can visit our website, which I would hope you would know at this point is rebind.io. And you can find us on Twitter at, at rebind underscore IO. And we'll see you next time.